Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. On February the 22nd, 2014, at just the age of 47, when her body was found in her home just outside of Sydney, Australia, where she had hung herself. Uh, Dawson had released an autobiography just two years before she took her own life, in which she openly acknowledged a long struggle with depression. She also openly confesses in that autobiography that this depression started around the time that her husband, who was Scott Miller, is actually an Olympic, um, Olympic swimmer uh, who was training to compete in the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Dawson was married to him uh, for only about one year. Uh, but during that time of his training, she discovered that she was pregnant. And sensing some degree of, quote, hesitation in Miller and not wanting to uh, affect his training at all for those games, she entered into an abortion clinic alone and terminated the pregnancy. And this, she states, began a 15-year battle with guilt and depression that didn't end until she concluded that the only escape from that guilt and depression was to terminate another life that life being her own. Now, depression is a complex thing, and I don't begin to pretend to understand what was going on in the heart and mind of Charlotte Dawson, someone I've never met, when she decided to take her own life. But what I do know, and what her story illustrates, is how heavy and unbearable and overwhelming, damaging, and even deadly the weight of guilt can sometimes be. I mean, we're not surprised to learn of studies that are done uh, with military personnel who have been involved in combat to find strong correlations between guilt, the development of depression, and suicide risk. We're not surprised because we get it. We've all felt the weight of guilt. And we all, on some level, share the experience of the psalmist. The psalmist himself who writes in Psalm 38, verse 4, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. We can can relate to that on some level because we know what it feels like to be hounded by feelings of unworthiness, feelings of being unlovable because of the things that we've done that we have deemed are unforgivable. To be preoccupied with our failures and to be haunted by regret and by our inability to change the consequences of mistakes we've made and to undo the damage that some of them have done. Perhaps you're under the weight of guilt this morning from something that you've done. Maybe it's an abortion. Maybe it's premarital sexual activity that you wish you could take back, but you can't. Maybe it's an extramarital affair. Maybe that affair is known about. Maybe it's something you're keeping secret and you're feeling crushed by the weight of that. Maybe you're dealing with other secrets, secret sins. There are patterns in your life that you don't feel you can escape from, but you're carrying great guilt and shame because of them. Same-sex attraction, habitually viewing pornographic material, being involved in drug use. Maybe you're addicted to drugs. Maybe you've introduced other people to these things, and now you're bearing the guilt of watching them feel trapped in those kinds of sin patterns. Maybe your guilt is the guilt of a parent. 
for failures that you perceive you've done to your children. Or maybe it's the guilt of a child for wrongdoings that you've committed against a parent. Maybe it's something other than these things. Maybe a harsh word that you spoke to someone that's forever altered that relationship and you can't take those words back. Maybe a violent act that you've perpetrated that left someone injured. Maybe it's an accident that you were involved in that you can't stop blaming yourself for because it happened. Or maybe it's just simply you're carrying around regret because you didn't ask that person out five years ago when you had the chance, or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago. And you can't get over the fact that you feel like you've made a mistake. Or maybe it's not sharing the gospel with that person when you had the chance because you were too afraid. Or it could just be this vague sense that God is going to punish you and bring the hammer down because he knows you're guilty and you know that too. But whatever it is, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you can be crawling through life under the crushing weight of guilt and regret and hear the constant voices of self-accusation and self-condemnation coming from your own heart. That could be you this morning. You could have dealt with that in your past, but it's likely happening to either you or someone close to you, even now. But what can we do? What does the Bible say about dealing with our regret and our guilt, whether real or perceived? And how do we silence those voices of self-condemnation? Should we silence those voices of self-condemnation? Well, to consider this issue this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. We're just going to look at more of the context, but especially we're going to be looking at verse 20. Because it's in verse 20 that with keen awareness and with pastoral sensitivity, John helps us to identify the key to quieting a condemning heart. So that's, that's our topic this morning, quieting a condemning heart from 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. If you have that in your Bibles, um, you can turn there. If not, you can follow on the screen. But let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Beginning in verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless both the reading and the preaching of it this morning, that we might be drawn to you, that you might give us ears to hear the truth and to rejoice in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the first thing that we need to consider and admit about the condemning heart is that sometimes it is deserved. So we want to look at the condemning heart deserved. We experience a condemning heart because we are morally sensitive beings. 
And we are aware of our conformity or our lack of, of conformity to right and wrong. This was touched upon last week, actually, with Pastor Bob was uh, preaching from Romans chapter 2, specifically in verse 15, when we saw that the works of the law are stamped upon the human heart. And we know whether we've conformed or not conformed to our obligation before the Lord. But we also saw in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that this morally sensitive component of our makeup or of our constitution is referred to as the conscience. Conscience, which seems to, to be this inner sense of right and wrong. And when it's functioning properly, this conscience alerts us to the reality of sin, to the reality of wrongdoing, and it results in guilt feelings. So as a result of specific sins that we commit, we are really, truly guilty of breaking God's law. That's an objective reality. Our guilt for specific sins is an objective reality. And we ought to have an, a, a subjective experience that accompanies that objective reality. And they're not necessarily the same thing. To be guilty is, is a, describing a real objective state. But our subjective experience of that is what we feel, that that objective state is accompanied by guilt feelings. And that ought to be the case. When we are objectively guilty, we ought to feel guilty. And we need to own this and admit that there are instances where the condemning voice of our heart is good and right because it is deserved. When we've sinned, we are guilty, and we ought to feel convicted. It's an interesting word, isn't it? to feel convicted. It's a legal term that's really closely associated with being condemned. But when we're guilty, we should feel guilt. We should feel convicted. And this is really important to say, that there is absolutely nothing wrong with feeling guilty when guilt is caused by a conscience that is alerting us to a real violation of God's law. There's absolutely nothing wrong with feeling guilty when our conscience is accurate and it's alerting us to a real violation of God's law. I mean, the truth is that our conscience is a gift from God. I mean, think about it. With, without feeling guilt, we would lack an incentive to seek a savior from our guilt and our condemnation. Our conscience and the ability to feel guilt is a good thing. Like neurological pain, pain that we sense in our body, alerts us to the fact that something is wrong so that we can seek healing. In a very similar way, our conscience supplies a spiritual sting of conviction that's a, that alerts us to the fact that something is wrong, specifically that we've done something wrong, and it prompts us to seek healing. It prompts us to seek spiritual healing through confessing it, through asking for forgiveness, and through seeking reconciliation with God and others that we've wronged. Contrary to a lot of current ideas out there in pop psychology, the ability to experience guilt feelings is a necessary component of healthy relationships. It helps us maintain healthy relationships, both with God and with others. In fact, the incapacity for feeling guilt is widely recognized in clinical psychological circles as a serious disorder. It's referred to as antisocial personality disorder. I've referenced this before. But antisocial personality disorder is a clinical diagnosis. is not a label assigned to people who are extremely introverted, 
and don't like to be around people, don't like to interact with people. That's not what it refers to. It refers to a person who repeatedly violates and manipulates, injures, and wrongs other people with no signs of remorse, regret, or guilt. That's what antisocial personality disorder is. It's almost as if the person lacks a capacity for feeling guilt, remorse, and regret. And Scripture seems to anticipate the reality of this kind of person. It doesn't call them antisocial, but perhaps it refers to them as a person who has a seared conscience. Bob talked about this last week in Romans chapter 2 as well. Paul talks about people with a seared conscience in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Perhaps we read it elsewhere in Scripture with different language. The related, if not identical, concept of having a hardened heart. Mentioned in Hebrews chapter 3, an impenetrable heart that is insensitive to our wrongdoing and to our guilt. That disables us from turning from that guilt and seeking absolution. And it could be really what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1. We talk about God handing people over leaving them with an insensitive conscience that disables them from turning to him for salvation from their sin and their depravity. Perhaps we could think of the conscience like a sharp-edged cube that functions within our heart. And those sharp edges twist and they turn, causing pain of conviction when we've done wrong. But the reality is that those, those pointed edges can become softened and rubbed down by stubborn rebellion and by a constant ignoring of the warnings so that it becomes insensitive and the person no longer possesses a healthy capacity for feeling guilt. That's a serious problem. A properly functioning conscience is a sign of health. But an insensitivity of the conscience is one way the condemning heart becomes distorted. And that's the second thing we want to look at this morning, the condemning heart distorted. Like our other faculties, our conscience has fallen, and so it, it malfunctions so that our subjective experience doesn't actually correspond with the objective reality. Two things that this can happen. We can have a conscience that's dangerously insensitive. In other words, you're truly guilty, but you don't feel guilty. But the other is also true. It can malfunction the other way so that we cannot be guilty but always feel guilty. We can have an overwhelmingly hypersensitive conscience. In other words, it overfunctions. It overstates our guilt so that our heart condemns us when we're not guilty. Our heart condemns us falsely. That can happen. And this kind of distortion can be just as damaging as not feeling guilt at all and is almost certainly more common in people. Almost certainly more common in people. Some people just seem to be born with a very sensitive, tender conscience. But it also seems true that Christians can be especially prone to this kind of distortion. Christians may be especially prone to this kind of distortion, some having grown up in very crippling legalistic environments where love and affection is conditioned upon very rigid obedience because the parents are committed to producing moral children. But everything is conditional. The children feel guilty, where shaming is used to manipulate them into compliance. 
and we're laying guilt trips on people from the pulpit in the church become very commonplace. This is some people's experience in the church. And it is crippling because they're left sensing that God is only a merciless judge rather than a loving father. And the grace of the gospel is difficult for them to grasp. They, they can't wrap their heads around it because their hearts, their hearts have been warped by this guilt. But all of us can easily forget the gospel and feel frequently condemned by God, like that he's out to punish us and condemn us for our guilt because we often are prone to buy the lie as well that God's acceptance and blessing toward us hinges on our moral performance rather than on Christ's moral performance for us. And so it's easy for Christians to be plagued by guilt from a hypersensitive conscience. And this hypersensitive conscience can come from a number of different kinds of distortions. Let me just point out three of them this morning. There's the distortion of ultimate control. And that means the condemning heart comes from this, this idea that we have failed to control situations that we ought to have controlled. This is very common among parents who have wayward children. That somehow that's, that's the parent's fault. But when your children make sinful choices, that doesn't automatically indict you for somehow causing the choices that they're making. You see it with spouses as well. Spouses who have, who have been unfaithful. But the other spouse is left feeling guilty that he or she has done something wrong. And that certainly is not at all necessarily the case. It happens with accidents as well. The people are left guilty feeling that they should have prevented that accident that resulted in harm. And they, could, they couldn't have done anything about it. To believe that we are somehow responsible for preventing all evil and harm because we should have controlled it is to believe a lie. It's the distortion of ultimate control, but it can leave us feeling the weight of guilt that we're somehow responsible. There's also the distortion of ultimate standards. When we feel guilty and condemn ourselves because we have violated personal standards or societal standards, but not violated God's standards. People can feel guilty because they don't make enough money. People can feel guilty because their houses aren't clean enough or their children aren't behaved well enough. People can bear a lot of guilt for not getting enough good grades. So you got to see in the class. You worked your hardest and you got to see. People carry around immense guilt for those kinds of things, not measuring up to their own performance standards or feeling that like they let other people down or feeling like their reputation has been diminished in the eyes of others because of their failures. That's a violation of a personal standard or a societal standard, not one of God's standards. But to believe that guilt is established by anything or anyone other than God and his standard is, again, to believe a lie. Those things don't establish the reality of your guilt. There's only one standard that establishes your guilt. And it's not yours. It's God's. But the condemning heart often adopts standards that are higher than or different 
than God's. But that is to believe a lie. It's the distortion of ultimate standards. Finally, there's also the distortion of ultimate judgment. A condemning heart can reflect the fact that you've ascended the throne of ultimate judgment and you've supplanted God's place there to render final verdict. And where you may have already confessed those sins to God and the gospel has declared that those are forgiven, you refuse to accept that verdict because you've put yourself in the place of God. But to believe that the final verdict is yours to render is, again, a distortion. It's to believe a lie. That belongs to God and God alone. Isn't it interesting that in the Scriptures we are never called to forgive ourselves? We hear that language in a lot of places. We do not hear it in Scripture. We're never called to forgive ourselves because we're not the ultimate judge. What we are called to do in Scripture is to seek God's forgiveness and then to trust in that forgiveness according to His faithfulness. That's what we're called to do. Not to forgive ourselves. And make no mistake about it, behind all of these distortions, not behind conviction for real sin that's produced by a conscience worked upon by the Holy Spirit, not that, but behind these distortions is satanic influence. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he's called in Scripture. And he wants you to be eternally condemned, and he wants you to feel eternally condemned without hope. Because that's going to rob you of any joy, of any strength, of any assurance, and any security in your relationship with God. And that's what he wants. Instead of finding joy in relationship with God, he wants you to practice penance. The penance of self-mental lacerations, of self-condemnation repeatedly that cause you to cling to deep regret, to deep shame, to deep guilt over things that you've done, mistakes you've made, failures you've experienced, sins that you've committed, to cling to these things in order to punish yourself for these things and somehow make atonement for them by your own strength. That's what Satan wants you to do. And perhaps you're doing that this morning and you're wondering what you can do with this distorted sense of guilt and how you quiet a condemning heart or how you defeat it. So that's the third thing we want to look at this morning, the condemning heart defeated. The first step in moving toward defeating a condemning heart is to confess actual sin. To confess actual sin. The truth is we're never ultimately and truly guilt-free in this life because we continue to sin. And so a healthy conscience will be increasingly sensitive to the reality of sin in your life through the Holy Spirit working upon your conscience to convict you. And so maybe the first thing we need to consider is, is there actual sin I need to confess? And so it's not 1 John 3 that we look at, it's 1 John 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, which tell us this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confess actual sin and then trust God and his faithfulness 
to forgive it. But when we turn to John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, John seems to recognize that not every condemning heart is a result of having committed actual sin and being truly guilty. Because John doesn't direct us to confess sin when our heart condemns us. Because our heart might be condemning us for other reasons. And so whether it's real guilt for, for real sin, we have to confess that. But we also have to believe the gospel. Even here, look, confess your sins, but also know that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. So what's central to quieting a condemning heart is believing the gospel. Believe the gospel. Here's another lie that we sometimes fall into pretty readily. And that's underestimating how sinful our hearts are. So we end up with a lot of guilt because we've disappointed ourselves. Not so much that we've offended God, but we've disappointed ourselves because we've done something that we thought we were above. And it's hard for us to reconcile that we've fallen into such despicable conduct. But the truth is, we're not above anything. Nobody in this room is above anything. And we're actually all more guilty than we even realize. And we're all more sinful than we realize. Our sin should always sicken us, but it really shouldn't surprise us. Why are we surprised by those things? Because we don't know our hearts very well. It's not our sin that should surprise us. Here's what should surprise us. It's the gospel. Not that your sin is worse than you thought it was, but that God's love for you is greater than you could have ever imagined. That's what should surprise us. And here's what John points us to in quieting a condemning heart. He points you to God who's greater than your heart. Look away from your sin to the God who is greater than the voices of your condemning heart, a God who is full of grace and forgiveness. Here's what we need to come to terms with. God's love for you is more ultimate than what you think about yourself. God's love for you is more defining than how you feel about yourself. And God's love for you is greater than your sin and your guilt. Some of you need to personalize that and preach to yourself. God's love for me is more ultimate than what I think about myself. God's love for me is more defining than how I feel about myself. And God's love for me is greater than my sin and my guilt. Are you believing that? See, we have to focus not on our failures, but on his faithfulness in believing the gospel. It's interesting, John mentions here in verse 20 as well that he knows everything. He knows everything. He knows what you did. He knows how guilty you really are. He knows you're guilty for things you don't feel guilty about because you don't recognize you've done them. But he knows all of that. But even more than that, he knows your regret. He knows how much you wish you could undo. He knows how much you beat yourself up. And he knows how much you've learned to beat yourself up because others have consistently beat you up and thrown guilt trips at you. He knows all of that. But even more than that, he knows how completely, if you're a Christian, your sins are forgiven, 
and your guilt is wiped away through the atoning blood of Jesus, even when you struggle to feel like you're forgiven. He knows how objectively real not only your guilt is, but how objectively real your forgiveness is, whether you feel it or not. Now, it's true, though, if, if you're not a Christian, you are bearing an overwhelming load of guilt, whether you feel it or not, and you will be condemned for that. You are condemned for that unless you turn in repentance from your sin and look to faith to Jesus who died for sinners and bow to him as your Lord and your King. None of us have any right to ease the obligations of God's law that condemns us for our sin. We have no right to lift those obligations. And so we need to own the reality of our transgression and our guilt because we've broken God's law. And we need to own it by confessing, by practicing genuine repentance that turns from sin. If you're a Christian or non-Christian this morning, if you're in patterns of sin persistently, you should feel guilty. And if you don't feel guilty at all in the midst of those patterns of sin, that's a problem. That's a serious problem. You need to examine your heart. And we could say more. If we're not sacrificially loving others and growing in our sacrificial love for others, loving not just in word, but in deed and in truth, which John mentions here in verse 18, if we're not growing in that, then we have no right to assure ourselves that we know the sacrificial love of God in Christ. If we're not showing signs of regeneration or conversion, we have no right to assure ourselves that we're one of those for whom Christ laid down his life, mentioned in verse 16. That doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that we need to be able to say that while we're not what we, what we hope to be, and we're not what we now want to be, we are at least not what we used to be because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But at the same time, none of us have the right to adopt other standards, different standards, higher standards than the standard of God for us. And we have no right to deal more harshly with ourselves than God does. We have no right to do that. We can't supplant the place of God. There's only one standard by which you will be judged, and it's God's. Not yours, not society's, but God's. And the best of all is, if you're a Christian, you have no right to lessen the extent of God's love and mercy that's been shown to you who have received his forgiveness by faith through the atoning work of Jesus. We don't have a right to do that. <laughs> The gospel is this, you don't bear your very real guilt or your very deserved condemnation. You don't bear them because Jesus has borne your guilt for you on the cross. That's the gospel. He has stood condemned in your place. The good news is good news for the guilty. Get it? The gospel is good news for the guilty. So not only do you not have to atone for your imaginary sins, you don't have to atone for your real ones. Because God forgives. That's the good news of the gospel. As the musicians come forward, um, some of you know Martin Luther or 
are aware of his existence at one time in history. Probably don't know him. Uh, but you might also know 16th century reformer I had a very sensitive conscience. And Martin Luther wrote this. If ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I was that monk. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more I daily found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. And where Martin Luther found the power to quiet a condemning heart was the gospel, because he adds this. You should not believe your conscience or your feelings more than the word which the Lord who receives sinners preaches to you. There's more guilt in this room than we can even begin to imagine. But God's grace outweighs it all. So guilty sinner, come to Christ, come to the cross and be exonerated for your sins. And know that you're exonerated so that you can know that you're reconciled to your Father in heaven and have joy in that relationship. And you can sing of his amazing love because you can confess this as you praise him. I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. I'm accepted because he was condemned. We're going to sing that in just a second. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do confess that, that we're guilty. But we also want to believe that the gospel is good news for the guilty. Lord, help us do that. Help us to repent of the distortions and the lies that we buy that paralyze us and that interrupt our relationship with you. Thank you for already taking care of that through the work of Jesus. Lord, if there are those here this morning who have not put their faith in you, convict them of their guilt and display to them before the eyes of their heart, by your grace, the reality of the Savior from sin and guilt, Jesus. May we all behold him in his beauty as we receive the forgiveness of our guilt through him. For we pray in Jesus' name.